Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. This week, I'm joined by the amazing Dorothy Brown. Dorothy is a professor of law at Emory University, a tax lawyer, and the author of the new book, The Whiteness of Wealth, How the Tax System Impoverishes Black Americans and How We Can Fix It. One of the key factors in the creation of this phenomenon of the racial wealth gap is housing policy. There's a fundamental principle here, which is that if America's investments have set up your life um, so that you can be wildly economically successful, it should be your civic duty to help fund the rest of your fellow Americans. Black Americans have been facing economic inequality long before COVID-19 struck, and much of it has to do with the American taxation system. I'm Professor Dorothy Brown, and I'm fighting for racial justice in our tax laws. Sorry, not sorry. Dorothy, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And I have to tell you, I've probably never read the introduction to a book that so clearly lays out the problems that your book addresses more than the whiteness of wealth. So can you just tell us a bit about your family and what your economic situation was like? So my mother was a nurse, my father was a plumber, and growing up, we didn't have a lot of extra money, but my mother made clothes by hand, so we had nice clothes. She would go down to the garment district in New York. I grew up in the South Bronx. She'd go to the garment district in New York and buy remnants really inexpensively and make my sister and I clothes. So We struggled, but there was always food on the table. And I went to college. I went to law school. In college, I majored in accounting and at some point started doing my parents' tax returns and didn't think anything of it. I graduate. I start working. I'm continuing to do their tax returns. And I start to think something's wrong with this picture. I'm doing my tax return. I'm an investment banker making around $75,000. And my parents in their jobs were making total about $75,000. And I should be paying a whole lot more in taxes than they were, but I wasn't. And I would check the returns, double check, triple check, and nope, I wasn't doing anything wrong. They were paying, in my mind, more in taxes than they should have, but I couldn't figure out why. I had an LLM in tax. I knew what I was doing and I couldn't figure out why. Fast forward, I become a law professor and I have time to think. And I'm reading an article that says, what if there's some problem with race and tax? What if racism is found in our tax laws? And I thought, race and tax? That never occurred to me. So I picked up the phone. I called the author of the article, who happened to be a mentor of mine. And I said, I'm going to write about race and tax. I don't know what I'm going to write, but I'm going to do something. And he says, good. So off I go, not realizing the IRS doesn't collect statistics by race. How the hell am I going to write about race and tax if I can't get the data? 
but I'm from the South Bronx. I'm tough, right? So I'm not going to take no for an answer. So I just kept reading and I saw this one sentence in a Commission on Civil Rights report that said Black wives contribute more to household income than white wives. And that answered the mystery of my parents' tax returns. My parents were paying higher taxes because they were married to each other. You mentioned your mother and your parents and the way you grew up. And you talk about your mother in the book and how she was not afraid to confront racist behaviors when they were directed at her. But there was one incident that stood out for you. Can you tell us about that? Yes. We were walking out from home. We bought a three-family home. We lived on the first floor, rented out the top two floors. So we're leaving home. I don't remember where we were going. I'm holding my mother's hand and I walk to the corner and I see a cop car and a black guy in the back seat handcuffed with his hands behind his back and a white cop in the back seat beating him with a baton or beating him. And I look at the scene and I turn to my mother and I say, mommy, did you see that? And she looks and she turns to me and says, yes, that happens sometimes. And I look at the guy who's getting beat. We make eye contact. I follow him as the cop car is making a right turn until I can't keep eye contact anymore. And it was devastating to me because I felt so powerless. There was nothing I could do. And my mother, who took no crap off of anybody, is saying that happens sometimes. So I knew that there was nothing we could do to fix it. And it just hurt and devastated me. And I think it stuck with me years later. How old were you? I think I was about nine or 10. Oh, yeah, it was tough. Yeah, I could see how that could be really tough. And also in those formative years, those are hard years anyway. To watch that injustice that you can't do anything to fix. And of course, here we are in 2021, and we still see police officers misbehaving and beating and murdering black men. Do you have an opinion as to when the restraint of Mr. Floyd should have ended in this encounter? Yes. What is it? When Mr. Floyd was no longer offering up any resistance to the officers, they could have ended their restraint. It really is a testament to your mom to be able to say that to you. And then all of these years later, to still be fighting for that, it gives you an idea of how not only prevalent the issue is and was, but also how truly helpless it was at that time and how the rise in the BLM movement has just... I think, completely changed the narrative in a way that it is undeniable now. Agreed. And anyone that would ignore that is complicit. So is it fair to say that you became a tax lawyer to try to escape racism? Oh, that's more than fair. I became a tax lawyer so I could have a job that had absolutely nothing to do with race. Because dealing with racism in the South Bronx growing up was enough for me. I would deal with it. After I left work, I deal with it on the weekends. I didn't want to have to deal with it at work as well. So in my mind, taxes were only about money. Green was the only color that mattered. And as I put in the book, I have never been more wrong about anything in my life. Tell us what you discovered. So I discovered that, in fact, being Black 
under our tax laws means you're more likely to pay higher taxes and being white means you're more likely to pay lower taxes. And this holds, and it's particularly pernicious because when Black and white Americans engage in the same behavior, owning a home, getting married, going to college, tax laws advantage the way white Americans do the activity and disadvantage the way Black Americans engage in the activity. And we think of tax law as this race neutral, but it's anything but because tax laws interact with societal racism. I want to step back for a minute. And can you explain to my listeners the idea of a progressive income tax? Yes. A progressive income tax means the more income you have, the higher the tax rate that applies to your last dollar of income. So let's say you have $50,000 of income. Your first dollar is going to be taxed at a lower rate than your 49,000th dollar. Under a progressive tax rate, that's how it works. There are various rates and various brackets that apply as your income increases. So a progressive tax rate is different than a flat tax, right? A flat tax says no matter what your income is, you're going to pay this specific rate. A progressive tax says as your income goes up, so does your tax rate. It's all very confusing. So if we have a progressive income tax, then why do people who make more money pay less in taxes? Yeah, because there are some things called deductions, right? So it's income minus your deductions, which equal taxable income. And that's what the progressive tax rate applies to. So some of it's deductions. Some of it is income that is eligible for a flat rate. So we have a progressive tax system for wages. We have a flat tax rate for income from stock. So when we think about Warren Buffett, for example, because he's made his tax returns public and he complains that his tax rate is lower than his secretaries. Why is that? Because all of her income comes from wages subject to the progressive tax rate system. And most of his income comes from stock, which is subject to a low flat rate. So you write about a question that a mentor of yours posed in an article, and I'm going to pose the same question to you now. So to what extent have our tax laws been distorted now and historically by the question of slavery and continuing racism? They've been distorted significantly because our tax laws go back to 1913. Our Modern income tax laws, our progressive income tax laws, have a birthday of 1913. And think about what 1913 looked like for Black people. Would you expect tax laws that date back to 1913 to be helpful to Black Americans? No. 
and they are not. But here's the really fascinating thing. In 1913, tax laws were favorable to everybody but the really rich. In 1913, a really small percentage of Americans paid taxes. And who paid? The richest among us. The rich white Americans, 5%, depending on the year, paid taxes. So that meant most white Americans did not, and virtually all Black Americans did not. So even though Black Americans in 1913 were being discriminated against and it was legal, we weren't paying taxes. Fast forward to World War II. World War II changed the game. We needed more revenue to pay for the war. Taxes went up. And now suddenly almost all Americans are paying taxes, including Black Americans. But we're in the 1940s. This year, thanks to Hitler and Hirohito, taxes are higher than ever before. Will you have enough money on hand to meet your payments when they fall due? Ah, we'll take care of that later. Forget it, forget it. But you don't want to forget our fighting men, do ye? Then you'll have to start saving right away to meet your tax payments. So Black Americans are paying taxes, but they're not getting services. Why aren't they getting services? Vestiges of slavery. Vestiges of reconstruction that never made Black Americans newly freed from slavery full and equal citizens. So once World War II came and most Americans were paying taxes, you had Black Americans paying taxes and not getting the services they were paying taxes for. So the vestiges of slavery that is really codified in our tax laws date back to 1913, date back to the 1940s, date back to a time before the civil rights movement of the 60s and the Civil Rights Act of 64, Voting Rights Act of 65, Fair Housing Act of 68. So that's how the vestiges of slavery were brought into our tax laws very naturally. Nobody was thinking about helping Black people in 1913. So when you think about the history of how we got to our current tax system, you realize, well, if you think about it for a minute, one could have predicted, oh yeah, there would be a race and tax problem that would hurt Black people because the origins are at a time when nothing in the government was working for Black people. And you spoke a little bit before about the joint filing system and how it benefits white couples. But can you just go through that again? So there's this thing called the joint return. And it means that two spouses who are married, now it means you could be same sex, then that's a fairly recent development. But for many decades, it was only a husband and a wife. They got married, they could file a single return. So what? Well, the single return would allow a high income earning husband to be treated as if he earned half of what he earned and his wife would be treated as if she earned the other half, which meant their tax rate would be cut significantly when they get married. So that's how single wage earner couples pay less in taxes when they get married. But Black Americans have never had the luxury of Black wives being stay-at-home spouses. Why? Because Black husbands don't make as much as white husbands. 
Black men have a high unemployment rate, so their connection to the labor market isn't as strong as white men. So we see Black wives, like my mother, contributing significant amounts to household income, like 50-50. Those couples, they didn't get a tax cut when they got married. They paid higher taxes when they got married. So when I looked at my parents' taxes and said, something's wrong, what was wrong was the marriage penalty. The marriage penalty means when two people get married, their taxes are higher than if they stayed single. And the marriage bonus is when two people get married, their taxes are lower than if they stayed single. The thing that really surprised me when I was doing my research that it wasn't until 2010 that roughly equal number of white wives participated in the workforce as black wives. So you get equal participation, but it's not the same thing as the same degree of contribution. So white wives who are married to white husbands who earn a lot more than them, they could be in the workforce full-time or they could be in the workforce part-time. They're not contributing 50% to household income. So even though white women are working a lot more than they used to, white wives are working a lot more, they're not necessarily contributing in the range that Black wives are And therefore, the white households, they're more likely to get a bonus than pay a penalty. But what you do see is over time, more and more white wives were, in fact, contributing significant amounts to household income. So my argument is the Trump tax cuts fixed this to some extent. With this plan, the typical family of four will save $1,182 a year on their taxes. They eliminated the marriage penalty and increased the marriage bonus. And trust me when I say the Trump tax cuts did not do this because Black people were paying a lot in taxes. They did it because of the growing percentage of white couples that found themselves in the marriage penalty category. It's unbelievable. I want to talk about home ownership, but I think first we need to touch on the racial wealth gap. Can you tell us how wealth compares between white and black Americans? Yes, about 10 times the amount of wealth is in white households than black households. So we'd say median wealth is like 171,000 for white households. It's about 17,000 for black households. So that's a 10 to 1. So how do we get this racial wealth gap? Part of it is, as I talk about in the book, until slavery was ended, you couldn't even talk about a black-white wealth gap because black people were property. We couldn't own property. So once we have the Civil War and once we have the 13th Amendment, we could talk about a black-white wealth gap. However, it's not like black Americans who were formerly slaves were given property, right? We didn't get our 40 acres and a mule. We got the ability to work on other people's lands and not get paid for it at a market rate. So we see part of the racial wealth gap is historical, but it's also ongoing. My argument of the book is every April 15th, Black people pay more, white people pay less. So there's more that gets contributed to the racial wealth gap. But when we think about the typical white American and what wealth they have, a lot of it comes from their home. Some of it comes in the stock market, but a lot of it comes from their home. 
it's even more true for Black Americans with wealth. But homeownership is not an unqualified good for Black Americans. People often think, well, we just need Black people to be more like white people and build their wealth like white people did, and then everything would be fine. And one of the biggest ways people talk about building wealth for Black Americans is we just need more homeowners because the majority, like 70-something percent of white Americans are homeowners, but 46% or 47% of Black Americans are homeowners. So the majority of white Americans are homeowners. The majority of Black Americans are renters. And Black Americans with homes have more equity, more net worth than Black Americans who rent. So you'd think, well, this is an easy solution. We just get more Black people owning homes. However, where Black Americans own homes and buy homes is very different from where white Americans own homes and buy homes. White Americans tend to live in almost all white neighborhoods. Black Americans tend to live in racially diverse neighborhoods or all black neighborhoods. Paul and his wife, Tanisha Austin, felt like they captured a slice of the American dream in 2016 when they purchased their first home together, this original Marin City Pole home. But it wasn't without challenges. As soon as like a house came on the market, you go in, you put your bid in, and then you get outbidded by like 100000 or more rather quickly. And that can be, you know, a little bit depressing. They bought the home off market from another black family hoping to make homeownership a reality for a young black couple. There are some black Americans who live in all white neighborhoods and the research shows if less than 10% of your neighbors are black, your homes are valued more. So white homeowners tend to live around a lot of other white homeowners and there might be one black homeowner in the area whereas most Black homeowners live with a lot of other Black neighbors. The market, which is dominated by white homebuyers, stays away from racially diverse or all-Black neighborhoods. So the value, the supply-demand, right, value of those white neighborhoods are more highly valued, more highly sought after by the majority of homebuyers who happen to be white. So black homeowners and their neighbors are financially hurt by decisions white homeowners make. That's precisely right, Alyssa. Exactly. So how do we fix this? Before we get to fixing it, I want to talk about how black Americans should think about the home buying decision until we fix it, because it's really important. So I think buying a home is fraught. So you have to be careful. One of the things you have to be careful with, if you buy in a racially diverse or all-Black neighborhood, do not be house poor. Do not spend as much as you possibly can on the house. Spend less, invest in your retirement account, invest in the stock market, save money for your children's 529 uh, college savings account. Do other things with the money that you're not maxing out your home budget because you're not necessarily going to get the value out of it. Or you could buy in an all-white neighborhood and you will more likely get value out of it. 
but you will deal with racism. You will deal with the neighbors calling the cops on you when you go in your house because they don't know you're a neighbor. Your children will be the only Black kids in the school, and you as the parent will have to deal with the school system that's going to look at them as future criminals, right? So you can make a good financial investment, but you're going to have some racism (laughs) to deal with. So those are the choices, and you basically have to navigate which one makes the most sense for you and your family. Now, how do we fix it? Well, one way to get to fixing it is to take the tax system, which right now encourages this nonsense, and take it out. So when you sell a home at a gain, tax law allows you, if you're married, a half a million dollars of gain tax-free. You could sell and get $500,000 of income from that sale, pay no taxes. If you sell at a loss, no tax break for you. So tax law privileges how white Americans own homes. They tend to appreciate in value. They get the value tax-free. Black Americans are more likely than white Americans to sell their home for a loss. That's not tax deductible. When we sell stock at a loss, we get a deduction. When we sell our home at a loss, we don't. So one of the solutions I argue for is to get tax law out of encouraging the systemic racism that's baked into the homeownership market. No tax breaks for homeownership. And is this done on a state or federal level? Federal income tax is what I'm talking about. So on the federal level, we have the tax law that lets you sell your home for half a million dollars and you get that half a million dollars in cash, it's not taxable. But the Black family that sells for a loss, no tax break. So one way to bring attention to this issue, because part of the fixing it is for people to understand it goes on. Exactly. People have to know this is happening. That's right. They have to know it's happening. They have to not buy into this notion that homeownership is an unqualified good for everyone. Homeownership in America has been an unqualified good for most white Americans. It has been an unqualified not good for many black Americans. It's no secret that white people have had an easier time getting ahead in America. But one of the most important reasons for this might surprise you. For millions, owning a home remains at the heart of the American dream. But many black Americans have been left out. A new report says just 44% of black families own a home compared to 74% for whites. Owning a home is the way that most people develop wealth. Uh, It is the uh, way that uh, for years and years and years, people have been able to pass something on to their to their children or pay for their education. It's part of the reason the average white family has about 10 times the median wealth of a black family. The first thing we need to bring attention to it, but honestly, the problem exists, you said it, with choices white homeowners are making. White homeowners need to make different choices. Either not valuing a property less because the neighborhood has more than 10% Black neighbors, or moving to a racially diverse neighborhood and not centering themselves and trying to turn it into a white neighborhood. So white homeowners are really part of the problem here, and they can choose to be part of the solution. But the federal government is also part of the problem by subsidizing this racist market. 
it's incredible to me that there is not been legislation on this, especially or even discussion, especially now when we're talking about reparations and we're talking about race as something that is so systemic that we have to change it at its very core. And yet this is part of the conversation that I feel like you are the only one shining a light on. You're absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more. I've been writing about these race and tax issues since 1996. And it's really interesting. Nobody wants to hear it. But there's hope because people want to hear about it now. They didn't want to hear about it for all those years because what the tax geeks would say, well, the Internal Revenue Code is race neutral. It doesn't say anything in there that Blacks pay more. But systemic racism works by not saying Blacks pay more. It just does it. So most people who are tax experts are not race experts. So they don't even know to look for it. So I grew up with a racial lens, I call it. So when I read that article, I didn't scoff and say, oh, that's silly. I said, I'm going to see if I can do this. I'm going to see if there is some race and tax problems. So part of why people don't talk about it is I think taxes are one of the last vestiges of Jim Crow that people don't see is a function of Jim Crow. So in June of last year, Senator Sherrod Brown in a Senate hearing made the statement about systemic racism and tax law. I just about fell out of my chair because it was the first time I had heard an elected official saying that. And I've been contacted by staff of the Senate Finance Committee to talk about how would we do race and tax data? How would we publish that? So I'm optimistic, to be honest with you, in this post-Floyd moment. So when I think about racism and watching that poor guy get beat by the police, and I think about the movement that the murder of George Floyd created or helped move along, what it did was it made white Americans think, what else have I missed? So there's an openness now. So somebody's saying race and tax. Oh, I never thought about that. Let me take a look as opposed to, oh, that just can't be right. That just can't be right. You know, I see racism in the criminal justice system, but what are you talking about this racism and tax law? Well, I mean, it's all intersectional, though. Hearing you tell the stories and hearing how the laws function, it's undeniable. So I also want to touch on student debt because there's a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to forgive some or all student debt in America. What would this mean to black Americans and how is that different from what it means to white Americans? So black Americans getting rid of or forgiving student loan debt would be a benefit to significant percentage of black Americans. What I would say, though, is. It would also benefit some 
wealthy white Americans, right? So some people are pushing back and saying you want targeted relief. My response is give them relief because we've basically sold an American dream that says you've got to go to college. And then colleges are not welcoming places for Black Americans, right? Lots of predominantly white colleges are not welcoming. But who has been welcoming? For-profit colleges that are allowing Black Americans who need to work, who may have a child, to take classes online and charge them a lot of money. For-profits have something like a 20% graduation rate, which is abysmal, which means students go into debt and they don't even have the degree, which will enable them to get a better paying job. So getting rid of that debt is a positive thing, I think. But for Black Americans, it isn't just student debt. It's also parental debt. And I haven't heard anybody talk about that because a lot of Black parents have gone into debt for their children to get a college education. It's a great point. You're absolutely correct. Nobody talks about that. Are the payroll taxes affected by race? Yes. And here's how I'd say payroll taxes are affected by race. Once you make a certain amount of money, you don't have Social Security withholding taxes anymore. It's over $100,000, right? And we know who those people are who are earning over $100,000. They're disproportionately white. In 1983, whites in their 30s had an average net worth of $184,000. Today, these whites, who are in their early 60s, have accumulated $1.1 million in wealth. In contrast, blacks have seen their wealth go from $54,000 to $161,000, and Hispanics from $46,000 to $226,000. So payroll taxes, Social Security withholding, are going to be disproportionately paid by Black workers because Black workers are more likely to be in lower-paying jobs due to occupational segregation, due to racial discrimination in the labor market. Payroll taxes implicate race as well. I will say one thing about college that I thought once we went online with COVID-19, and I put this in the book, that I would hope universities would think about ways to reach the college students that the for-profit online universities are preying upon. And within the last month or so, I saw Morehouse College has decided to work to create a program where Morehouse students who dropped out will be able to get their degree online. And I think that's wonderful. And I think it's a function of schools seeing that there are some benefits to online education that we would never have done were we not forced to during COVID. Well, I think so much of what we're learning are the benefits of being online. It means that we're home, we're we're with our families, we've slowed down, we're able to have dinner together, those things that were fleeting before. And we were guilty of it in this family as well. And mind you, I know that I have the privilege of being able to say that because I'm not an essential worker that has to go out there and and work. But we have to look at the positives. And I think there are many. Dorothy, please tell my listeners what we can do. How can we help you with your mission? How can we help fix this? 
So get informed, read the book, and then make sure your Congress member knows you want to help fix it. We need race and tax data. We need every tax law that is ever considered by Congress going forward to include a racial impact analysis. What is this law going to do based on race? So never again should we see a tax law that does not analyze the projected impacts by race. We see lots of tax laws analyzed by all different measures, but not race. And one of the things that President Biden has done is he signed an executive order on advancing racial equity throughout the federal government, which includes the Treasury Department, right? Those are the people the IRS is under that could start publishing race and tax statistics. So what your listeners can do is one, get informed, read the book. Second, think of ways they can use their privilege to disrupt the status quo. So research shows that where do you send your kids to school? Where do you buy a home? If you are an executive, who are you hiring? How are you making sure people you hire are paid what they're worth. Research shows that Black Americans and white Americans who have the exact identical resume apply for jobs, but Black Americans are targeted towards lower paying jobs, even when they apply for a higher paying job. So if you're an executive, what are you doing to make sure your company, your field, your part of the world is not making things worse. So there are lots of things your listeners can do starting right where they are. And I would also just recommend that everyone is conscious of if you do invest in the stock market, make sure you do your research on that company. If they have a diversity board, those are all really, really important things. Make sure you're not investing in companies that have a stake in private prisons or private detention centers. These things are really important and we all have to do our part. But also, we just all need to lobby for this in the same way that we lobby for other things. And when we talk about the filibuster being a remnant of the Jim Crow era, we should also call this out. That's right. Our tax laws are a remnant of the Jim Crow era. Absolutely. Thank you for this incredible education. I feel embarrassed that I wasn't more aware before I read your book. As an activist, someone that tries to fight for racial justice, obviously have so much to learn. But thank you for this education and speaking to this and for it being your mission. You shouldn't be embarrassed because remember, I went into tax law thinking it had nothing to do with race. And I went to school for tax law. (laughs) Yeah, it's really incredible. It's really incredible. And your work is really incredible. And the question I like to end these interviews with is just a simple question of what gives you hope? What gives me hope was all the people worldwide marching in the street this summer during COVID-19 for racial justice and equality across the board. That gives me hope. Um, Surveys that show 70-something percent of white Americans think racism is a problem. That gives me hope. But there's so much more work to do. But the conversation I'm having with you, somebody is talking to me about race and tax? That gives me hope, Alyssa. Because remember, I've been in the wilderness since 1996. You're not in the wilderness anymore. I am here. I am here with you. I am by your side. Let's do this. Let's do this. Dorothy Brown, you give me hope. So thank you. 
Thank you so much for all that you do and for being a part of the podcast. The U.S. has very high disparities by income, wealth, and mobility compared to other high-income countries. And these disparities are heavily skewed by race. And inheritances are an important part of this because they magnify all of these forms of economic inequality. If you look at the data, black households are about half as likely to receive an inheritance as white households. And when white households do, on average, it's 26 times larger than that of black households. So in order to address these systemic inequalities, we need to do a lot of things. But a vital component is changing tax policy. So the average federal tax rate on income in the form of inheritances right now is just about one-seventh of the average tax rate on income from savings and good old hard work. If you're one of those people who say white privilege doesn't exist, this episode better have changed your mind. As white people, we benefit from advantages we never even think about. And both the advantages and the fact that they never cross our mind are proof of our privilege. We already know that our tax system benefits the wealthy. We all know that proportionately Mitt Romney pays way less than a teacher or a nurse or a plumber. We all know that Paul Ryan and Donald Trump made that so much worse. But the clear truth of the matter is that it is even worse for those who are not white, and especially for those who are not white and male. It is all backwards. The people who benefit most from society need to contribute most to it. None of the wealthiest got there alone. None of them are self-made millionaires or billionaires. That is a total myth. Every single one of them had help from a society designed to perpetuate wealth often at the expense of the non-wealthy. And we know who the least wealthy Americans are. And they are not white. Our nation runs on taxes. Without tax money, there is no America. So our tax system needs to be reflective of America, supportive of our citizens, and not geared to the people who need the least help. We need to end the whiteness of wealth. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. 